You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades, supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. I want to express to you and to uh, people of Germany my sincere condolences, the condolences of the American people for the devastating loss of life and the destruction due to the flooding over the past 24 hours in Germany and neighboring countries. Welcome to EU Confidential, Europe's number one politics podcast. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels. And you just heard US President Joe Biden, who was standing alongside Angela Merkel in Washington as he commented on the devastating floods that swept through swathes of Western Europe at the end of last week. Oh my God! Some three months' worth of rain falling in just 24 hours. In a district of the city of Liège, an entire cafe literally fell into the river. The village of Orlov has literally been ripped apart by the floodwaters. You don't expect people to die in a flood in Germany. Hundreds of people have lost their lives and the damage to towns and villages in the region has been severe. It is erschreckend. Ich will fast sagen, die deutsche Sprache kennt kaum Worte für die Verwüstung, die angerichtet ist. Of course, um, the European Union has been helping with helicopters, with boats, but I just reassured the citizens that we will of course be here also for reconstruction. In this episode, we'll hear from our reporter in the flood zone and discover what he's seen and what he's heard from people there. And we'll also discuss the political implications of the catastrophe. Did the systems meant to warn and protect people work as they should have? And how might this affect the contest to take over from Angela Merkel, with Germany's general election just two months away? We'll also talk about the big spyware scandal this week and the latest source of tension between China and the West. Later in the episode, we'll turn the spotlight on Belarus and bring you a conversation with opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. We'll hear how she wants the EU to put pressure on the Lukashenko regime to hold new elections this year. And we're also looking for your ideas for something we're going to do next week, but we'll get to that a bit later. First, let's check in with Politico's Lawrence Gerke, who joins us from Hagen, a town in western Germany hit hard by the floods. Hi, Lawrence. Hi, Andrew. Give us a sense of of what you've seen over the past few days in, in Hagen and other places. Just, you, you know, describe your impressions. Well, the first town I visited on Monday was Euskirchen, that is south of Cologne. And um, Euskirchen itself wasn't even the worst. But from there, I went to the more severely affected places like Bad Münstereifel, which is actually a, a very small town. And it used to be very pretty, but now it looks like a like a tornado went through there. There's, uh, everything is broken, basically. Hmm. What's your, you know, what are the images that would um, stick with you most from the past few days? 
now that the weather has become hot and dry, all the mud that the water carried into the towns uh, has turned into red brown dust and the very heavy trucks that are used to get all the stuff out of the towns now drive through the streets and all the dust uh, lingers in the air it, it really looks a bit like a war zone at some points what about the sound what are the sounds that will stay with you what, what have you heard over the past few days it's quite noisy in most places because uh, um, sometimes fire fighter trucks are still driving through the streets and you can hear knocking uh, from within the houses because I believe people are removing stuff or trying to rebuild stuff already. The reconstruction has already started. Right, and I guess people are trying to get the water out of their houses as well, right? Yes, and they're using very noisy machines for that that are standing out front and getting the water into the air. Right, so you've got the kind of sound of electric pumps as a, as a sort of soundtrack almost to some of these places and what about people that you have spoken to I mean obviously everybody everybody's story is different but is there anybody who particularly springs to mind or any kind of general message that you've got from talking to people yeah one one person that I remember in particular was an old man in a part of Badminster Eiffel who told me that his son just took over his supermarket that he ran for all his life and they've had financial difficulties before and they just started to recover before this flood. They didn't suffer under the pandemic because their business model wasn't affected by it. So they were looking with optimism into the future, but now everything was destroyed. The entire store is basically gone. And more generally, most of the people said it's also amazing how much support they've been receiving uh, not only within their own towns but people were traveling there from quite far away mm. and who or what do people hold responsible for this if if indeed anybody or anything you know obviously this uh, catastrophe has put climate change at the top of the political agenda because we know that uh, the warming of the earth makes events like this more common. We can't necessarily say that any particular flood or natural catastrophe is specifically attributable to climate change, but we can say that these will happen more often uh, due to climate change. And then, of course, there's been discussion about how much warning was given, whether the systems that were meant to warn people and give them time to evacuate or make preparations, whether those systems worked. You know, what have people been saying to you about, about those issues? Yeah, most didn't actually mention climate change in particular. They said this is a once in a century, if not once in a millennium event, and they were just very unfortunate to be hit by it. Although some also said that they heard on the news that carbon emissions are to blame for, for this kind of disaster. But uh, when it comes to warnings, everyone I talked to said, no, there wasn't any warning. And when there was any warning at all, it was too late already because the water was already very high. And uh, one man told me that he only realized how bad it was going to be when his neighbor said, did you see what's going on with your car? Don't you want to remove it? And had it not been for his neighbor, he his car would have been lost also. And it's not just the loss of the car because some of the damage in those towns was caused by cars floating and then randomly crashing into stores. It's, it really looked like from a film. Mm. 
And I know you've been talking to the mayor of Hagen, I think, where you are right now. I mean, what, what does he say in terms of the politics of all this, if you like? Yeah, the mayor of Hagen told me that he himself actually was warned by an app called Nina. And uh, there, there has been some uh, mentioning of that app uh, over the past few days uh, on the news as well. Is it a kind of extreme weather warning app or what is it? It, it basically is supposed to warn you of any kind of disaster in your area. And there's also been a debate about whether old-fashioned means of warning the population should be introduced. Like sirens, kind of reintroducing the, the kind of classic big uh, wailing siren, that kind of thing? Exactly. That's what Chancellor Merkel said when she was on her trip to Bad Münster Eiffel. Maybe she said the good old siren should be reintroduced. Most of them were removed after the Cold War and... Some people now said this is the new digital age. We need to introduce digital means of warning people. But the chancellor said, well, if in a situation like this, what occurred was that the digital infrastructure and indeed also the telephone connection didn't work anymore, whereas I suppose the siren would still work in that occasion. Mm. And what about just the general? Because there is meant to be a kind of flood warning system for local authorities, for national authorities, you know, kind of starting at a European level. You know, does that appear to have worked? No, it, it, it appears that a warning went out from the European level already four days before the disaster struck. And some of the locals also told me that they've since heard about that on the news and they were quite surprised because this chain of uh, giving the information, passing it on to maybe the state and then the local level doesn't seem to have worked very well or at all. One woman told me someone must have been sleeping. Yeah, well, I guess we're going to spend a lot of time now trying to figure out who was sleeping and how to make sure they're awake next time. Lawrence, I think we'll leave it there. Thanks very much. Thank you. OK, let's talk more about the floods and some other big news this week with our podcast panel. A warm welcome back after some weeks away for Matt Karnichnik in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Hi there. Thank you. And hi to Reem Montaz in Paris. Hi, Reem. Hello, all. And also joining us this week, EU-China correspondent Stuart Lau. Hi, Stuart. Hi, Andrew. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Matt, let's start with you and just continue on, on the floods. We just heard from Lawrence, uh, you know, reporting from the flood zone. Let's zoom out a bit, if you like, and um, talk about the political implications here. Uh, we're only a couple of months away from the general election. Armin Laschet, the leading candidate to replace Angela Merkel, is the state premier of one of the states worst affected by the flooding, North Rhine-Westphalia. Matt, how would you see this kind of playing out in terms of the election campaign? It might be too early to say at this point, to be honest, but so far it's not looking particularly good for Laschet, in particular because of what might be described as a gaffe uh, or a bad photo op that uh, he was involved in over the weekend where he was caught on video laughing while the German president was delivering a very somber kind of resume of what he had seen in the flood zone and the devastation and the suffering of the people there. And then you had Lashed in the background sort of mucking it up with his colleagues. And that was seen as being not just out of place, but also completely running counter to the image that he has cultivated over the years of being this very empathetic compassionate politician, 
a real man of the people, as it were. And there he looked more like a kind of you know, cynical politician making jokes at other people's expense. It's not really clear what he was laughing about, but that was almost you know secondary in the moment. So he's been trying to recover from that ever since. He was spotted in the flood zone yesterday with Merkel wearing rubber boots even, I think trying to uh, capture a bit of her glow, but it's it's not clear whether that's going to work. And, you know, I think the bigger question is whether Germans will now vote in large numbers for the Greens because they're worried about climate change, whether this, the floods, you know, move people to uh, embrace the Greens' environmental authoritarianism, as some people might call it. Some people might. I, I guess some people might call it something different. <laughs> um, I guess, as you say, it uh, you know it remains to be seen. I guess we're waiting for probably polls in the next in the next few weeks or next few days might give us a first sense of of how it goes. So we'll, we'll continue to watch that carefully. But let's switch to another topic now. Uh, made a lot of headlines around the world uh, this week, and this was the revelation by a consortium of, of media organisations and NGOs around a list that they've got hold of, a very extensive list of people or phone numbers that were reportedly selected for possible targeting, I'm phrasing this quite carefully, using a certain type of spyware called Pegasus made by an Israeli company called NSO. That company has attacked these reports, has dismissed some of the allegations without always being super specific about what it's refuting and what it's leaving uncommented. But it's certainly uh, made a lot of waves, particularly, I think, in Europe, probably the most, I don't know if it was a shocking revelation, but it was, after all, we were talking about an EU member. And the allegation was that the Hungarian government, the government of Prime Minister Viktor Orban, had selected for targeting critical voices, people who have been critical of the government, including journalists, and there was evidence, uh, according to these reports, not only that these numbers had been selected for targeting, but that some of these phones at least had been infected by this spyware. Uh, Remit also had an echo in France with uh, Emmanuel Macron reported his number, reported to be also on this list. What did you make of it? Well, it was quite interesting because the reaction from the French government and the Elysee Palace, so the presidential palace, has been quite muted. Uh, they really haven't been wanting to make any sort of real comment. They've been saying we're waiting to get more information. And the last thing they said when we really pushed them was if these turned out to be confirmed facts, then it would be very uh, grave. And then I said, OK, so what are the consequences for this grave action? And of course, there was silence. What is very interesting is that the current hypothesis or what these uh, sort of media revelations say is that it is a Moroccan security agency that uh, is at the heart of this and that may have selected one of Emmanuel Macron's phone numbers, cell phone numbers, uh, for surveillance and spying. Keep in mind that Macron has two phone numbers. Many of us have one of his phone numbers. He is always using it. And uh, Have you texted him for reaction to this one? 
I will decline to comment. Um, <laughs> and it's, it's really interesting because he really is one of those millennial generation leaders who's constantly texting. Uh, with his counterparts, actually, just a little parenthesis. Uh, this week, I was at the ceremony where he was honoring Reverend Jesse Jackson from the US. And at one point, they both sat next to each other. And Macron asked for his phone because he wanted to call the South African president whom he called. And then the South African president, Cyril Ramaphosa, sent him a message saying, I can't talk right now. I'm on a helicopter. All of that literally happened in front of me. So just so you know how much he uses his phone. Anyhow, was he under surveillance? We don't know yet. Was it Morocco? Huge skepticism off the record in France about whether this was actually a Moroccan operation or if Morocco is a smokescreen. So we're waiting to see. Mm. Matt, what do you make of it? I guess on, on the one hand, I mean, I find the possible revelation that a foreign intelligence service had tried to target Emmanuel Macron, not terribly Surprising. That's what spy agencies do, right? But what about the revelation in particular with regard to Hungary? What do you make of that? Well, in terms of, of Macron, I, the most surprising thing I've heard is that he only has two phones. If, if that's true, then, then that's, uh, that's pretty shocking. How I, many do you have? You know, I use a different one almost every day, to be honest, you know, but that, for different <laughs> reasons. But uh, I would have thought that he would have a lot of burners. So he has two phones <laughs> we know of, and then he has a hyper-secure defense security, like secret service level phone that is so not very user friendly that he actually doesn't use it very much. <laughs> that is the word on a lot of these kind of super encrypted, brilliantly secure phones is that they're almost impossible to use. Uh, so people end up using the ones with more basic kind of security. But, I, you know, th this is why I, I doubt that, you know, they would be so stupid, given how concerned the French are generally about security and given everything we know about how uh, the US, for example, has, has spied on other European leaders, including Merkel. And though a lot was made of that story, it turned out it was just a phone that she had been issued by the party. It wasn't the phone that she used for secure communications. So there, there's some doubt about whether they even were able to garner any useful information from it. I'm not surprised at all. This, you know, I mean, anybody given the chance would, you know, take up that opportunity, friend or foe. That's just how that world works. I. I not surprised that the Hungarians might have been spying on journalists uh, either, you know, less proper, clearly, and something that, you know, I would hope that the EU would continue to pursue. And you can see that, you know, Hungary, just pretty much with everything that Orban does, there was a, a poll he put out today, very controversial, about the issue of teaching uh, children and the way that he's put it, teaching children about homosexuality, that just further moves Hungary away from the core of the EU, if that was even possible at this stage. So I think this is just another step on Hungary's part away from the EU. And you just have to wonder where this ends. Yeah, I mean, just a quick clarification, that poll you mentioned is is actually meant to be a referendum. Yeah, Those are questions that the Hungarian government is proposing uh, to put to the Hungarian people. And um, I mean, like you, I wonder where all of this ends for Hungary and for Poland. I mean, we've seen in, in recent days, Poland, to put it mildly, moving in a different direction uh, when it comes to the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice of the European Union. So it feels like these 
uh, long-running and simmering tensions between Poland and Hungary and, if you like, the EU mainstream are getting more and more pronounced. And and so, like you, I I wonder where this ends. But let's stick with technology, uh, Stuart, because uh, there's quite a significant development on your beat this week with the US, the EU, the UK, NATO, all getting together to issue similar statements towards China, although not quite the same. So perhaps just fill us in on, on what they did first. Right. So it happened earlier this week when, as you said, the White House, the EU, the UK and NATO put out statements on Microsoft cyber attacks launched by hackers based in China. So I think the key difference here really is about who was the one behind such cyber attacks, which the UK said affected 250,000 servers. So if you look at statements by, for example, the UK, the US and Canada, They say it was launched by hackers associated with the Chinese Ministry of State Security, basically like MI6 in the UK or CIA in the US, that kind of organization. Everyone knows it exists, but, you know, not really sure what it's actually doing. Actually, I don't think the CIA has the ability to do something that sophisticated, to be honest, (laughs) given its record. I would be amazed. (laughs) I suppose, I suppose. But anyway, if we look at the EU statement, it's really fascinating because they were basically, you know, shying away from who was the one launching such attacks. So I was talking to this EU source, you know, he told me like this coalition thing has been going on for a month, you know, as regards the Microsoft attribution, but apparently it's just impossible to get all 27 member states to collectively point the finger at China. And I got in touch with the external action service and they told me it's about, you know, what the member states want to do when it comes to attribution. Uh, It's totally a member state kind of competence. So they don't really think it is the appropriate time at present to to talk about naming and shaming. But um, China doesn't like it anyway. They were basically saying, you know, Europe shouldn't be siding with the U.S., you know, to put the blame on China. And they were asking earlier today in the foreign ministry press conference, you know, talking about this particular question. And they were saying, oh, when the U.S. was uh, using Danish intelligence to spy on Angela Merkel, why didn't Europe speak out? Well, I think they did. Apparently they did, but probably not as uh, as vocally as they're doing this time, which, you know, China gets really upset about. And also because of the geopolitics is about the U.S. being in this position to muster, you know, a sort of international coalition NATO being involved, which is really interesting in this case, because NATO, of course, traditionally wants to focus the attention on Russia, but it is also increasingly talking about China. And that's something that Beijing is clearly watching very, very closely. What I found really interesting is that France and Germany didn't put out statements like the UK and the US and Australia and Japan and New Zealand did. But, you know, of course, they're like, oh, the EU put out a statement, except Germany and France know how to do bilateral European stuff, take over the EU when it comes to their trilateral summits with Merkel, Macron and Xi, which we've now seen three times over the past eight, nine months. It really doesn't uh, give off a very strategic autonomy sort of image compared to China. And I'm sure the Chinese have actually taken note of that. Right, because we do know, I, I think, that often they take more note of what individual EU governments are saying, particularly the more powerful ones, than perhaps people like Joseph Borrell, our old friend, the, the head of the, the EU Foreign Policy Service. And, and Stuart, actually, maybe just to come back to you, I think uh, you and I were both struck by a recent a recent visit that Borrell made, a recent trip where I think he met uh, his Chinese counterpart, if you can call him that. Remind us where he was and what he said. 
Uzbekistan, of all places, they were having a forum on connectivity, you know, of course, Belt and Road being in the background. So uh, there was uh, Borrell, uh, the EU foreign policy chief, and then Wang Yi, the Chinese foreign minister. But the main purpose of their presence in Uzbekistan is not so much about, you know, connectivity. Of course, you know, that is the main theme of the conference. But they were really trying to get a sense about what's happening on the ground in Afghanistan, which is a neighboring country. So it's really about getting a sense of what's going to to be expected after, you know, um, the withdrawal of the U.S. troops and NATO troops on September 11th. From the Chinese perspective, it's, you know, about this fear of religious extremism, you know, sort of spreading into neighboring Xinjiang region, which everyone is so familiar with right now. From the EU's perspective, uh, of course, it's about terrorism, it's about maybe another wave of migration and Absolutely, everyone is very concerned about what's happening in Afghanistan, and that's why they were meeting in Uzbekistan. Okay, well, I think we might leave it there for today. Uh, Matt, Reem, Stuart, thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Now, a quick request from us to you. As you know, we often ask our guests to recommend something, a book, a podcast, a TV series, a film, something they think our listeners would enjoy. Next week, we're going to do a special show rounding up some of those recommendations and adding some of our own for the holiday season. Hopefully, it'll be a bit of a public service. If you're on holiday or taking a break soon and looking for something to enjoy during your time off. But we also want to turn the tables a little and ask to hear from you, our listeners. If there's something you would like to recommend for holiday reading, listening or viewing, just shoot us an email. The address is podcast at politico.eu. One more time, that's podcast at politico.eu. We'd love to hear from you. Now... Coming up in just a moment, you'll hear from Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. Stay with us. Last week, Politico's David Herzenhorn had the chance to catch up with Belarusian opposition leader Svetlana Tikhanovskaya. She was speaking from her office in Vilnius, Lithuania, where many of those who are opposed to the governing regime of Alexander Lukashenko have fled since he was declared the winner of a presidential election nearly a year ago. That's an election that's been widely condemned as fraudulent, and it's an election that many believe Tikhanovskaya herself actually won. David caught up with Tikhanovskaya just ahead of her trip to the United States, which you'll hear them discuss in the conversation. When I last saw you, there was about to be the start of a trial involving your husband. Um, a lot of people forget that uh, that you're 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 in politics because he's in prison, and uh, maybe you could tell us what's been happening uh, with the case that, uh, in fact, was not even proceeding in a courtroom, as I remember. Yeah, uh, at the moment, uh, my husband is under so-called trial, and uh, the trial is closed. It's happening inside the prison, not even in real court. And it's uh, done only because the uh, regime is so afraid of those people who are behind the bars. They are afraid of their strengthness. They are afraid that they will inspire people to be stronger now. No, I think that uh, they will give those people, including my uh, husband, the highest numbers of, of uh, imprisonment. But we don't have to look at those numbers because we have to look at uh, 
what we can do to release those people. One year later, I mean, did anybody think that Belarus would still be fighting, that the opposition would still be fighting? And where do you see us going uh, from this point? I don't know how long it can take, it may take, to bring our country to new elections. But we have goal, new elections this year. And we have to follow this goal. Because there can be many scenarios of uh, how the situation will develop. But we have to fight uh, inside the country and outside the country. And today, even as, as we are speaking, the Foreign Affairs Council is meeting again in Brussels, the foreign ministers who last time I think I saw you, they had uh, just adopted, the EU had adopted a fourth package of sanctions. We've heard now uh, some hope for a fifth package of sanctions. But we also see that even since the last round of sanctions, the regime has tried some new strategies, sending migrants illegally into Lithuania, where you are right now, trying to bring pressure on Vilnius for its support of the Belarusian opposition. We hear foreign ministers uh, saying that, of course, there needs to be continued pressure. Talk to us about your sense that I think the last time uh, you said these sanctions will hit uh, Lukashenko and his regime in the wallet. Do you believe that still? Uh, you know, the fourth package of sanctions is uh, the strongest ever. But I have to admit that there are still loopholes. And we asked sanctions to be very strong. And, and very fast, you know, to not to give opportunity to the wallets of the regime to avoid those sanctions. And so as sectoral sanctions, they are prolonged in time because the old contracts are still working. Yes, new contracts can be adopted, but, you know, old are still working. And, uh, you know, uh, the cronies of Lukashenko, they are looking for ways out to, to how to avoid those sanctions. And step by step, they will get used to the situation. And that's why European countries have to close those loopholes for, uh, for the regime. And I think that uh, European Union answer, I hope it will be strong again as uh, after uh, Ryanair flight, because uh, we see that uh, the situation with uh, illegal migrants is very dangerous for security of European Union. And this is done only to take revenge on Lithuania and Poland because these countries are the first that uh, supported uh, civil society, that supported Belarus. And, you know, I, I think that democratic countries have to think twice, you know, before adopting new sanctions just to make them as strongest as possible. Because it's, as I said, Lukashenko's regime is not only a threat to Belarusian people at the moment, it's a threat to all the European society. You mentioned Ryanair Flight 4978, which, of course, the uh, Belarusian regime forced down, forced the landing of this plane that was traveling between Athens and Vilnius. And one of the things we know came up, the, the subject came up between uh, President Joe Biden and President Vladimir Putin when they met in Geneva. And Biden challenged Putin about this and said how dangerous this was. And Putin said, oh, I've been briefed by Lukashenko and everything was, was okay. And Biden said he, he asked him, but, but did you believe him? Did you believe him? Uh, we don't know what Putin's answer was to that. Uh, you know, I think that, uh, Europe and the USA and uh, other countries will believe only to uh, official investigation. And we are waiting for uh, this investigation to understand who was behind that hijacking. 
and uh, then we will be able to discuss the peculiarities of this subject. But I think you have no doubt who was behind it and why. Uh, Only one one person was taken off. I mean, and and his companion was taken off this flight. You know, we uh, can't discuss really. I, I can believe in many things, but uh, we have to rely on the on official investigation. And and if you have the chance to visit Washington, what what would you be looking for? What would you tell the the State Department and the White House? What would your message be if and when you get to visit? You know, first of all, we have to take care about people, about civil society. Of course, pressure uh, on the regime is very important because regime doesn't understand uh, anything on diplomatic level. We tried a lot to appeal to uh, regime uh, diplomatically through OSCE and different organizations. And pressure is very important. They understand only the language of sanctions. So the first point is put as much pressure on the regime. But what is more important is to support civil society. Because uh, our civil society was sleeping long time. And now it like renewed. And it's, it's very important to support all the initiatives on the ground and that had to flee the country. And uh, we uh, will ask about uh, showing more solidarity and about more uh, technical support to those people who are fighting inside country, to all the businesses that had to flee the country, but they are continuing their work in exile. Uh, they want to come back to Belarus as soon uh, as um, new election happen. And just to help us in this difficult time, because this uprising, this strive for changes, it will not disappear. But with the help of other countries, with the huge attention, it will happen much faster. And uh, we don't have to freeze this crisis. We have to resolve this. And so is uh, the voice uh, of uh, the USA is very strong. Uh, they have to be more vocal. They are standing for democratic changes. And this is what's happening in Belarus now. We really believe that Belarus can be a um, success story. And you, you described how there's no diplomatic messaging that seems to work with Minsk. And in recent days, we also see that they're kicking out diplomats. Uh, the Lithuanian uh, diplomats have been reduced, I think, now to one consular officer left, also Polish. Do you worry about the isolation and the isolation of the, the people in Belarus who are who have to make their lives there? Or do you think that this is a sign that the pressure is working and that the, the walls are kind of closing in on Lukashenko and his government right now? I think that regime now wants to show that they are strong, that they can do everything they want. And this is uh, they show uh, disrespectness not only to Belarusians, but also to diplomats from uh, uh, other countries. But it can't last a long time because our country is in the center of Europe. Our ge geographical position of Belarus, you know, has to have... Uh, diplomatic and trade relationship with uh, all the countries. It's not possible to survive without these trade relationships. And uh, regime shows its, its weakness while sending uh, migrants, while sending out diplomats. They want to show that, look, we are absolutely sustainable without you, but it is impossible. And I'm sure that European Union countries understand it as well. 
maybe I should ask one last question, which is um, when we arrive at August 4th, uh, the week of August 4th to August 8th, is there anything special planned? How do you plan to mark the anniversary of last year's election and the start of this movement? I really don't know yet because, of course, we are preparing for this date. It will be for sure uh, Worldwide Solidarity Day with Belarus. But uh, I know that workers are preparing a nationwide strike. I'm not sure if workers will be ready at this date, but still uh, something will happen, of course. We have, of course, to not, I can't say celebrate this date, but to mark this anniversary uh, of our uprising. And uh, I think that we will tell the world about this date in a couple of weeks, I hope. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thanks to David for bringing us that conversation. And since they spoke, Tishanovskaya did make her way to Washington, where she met with US politicians and officials, including National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan. No sign of any immediate big change in the US position on Belarus, but we'll keep a close eye on that. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Be sure to subscribe to or follow the podcast in whatever app you use so you get every episode automatically in your feed. And please send us those recommendations for holiday reading, listening or viewing. The address for those or anything else you want to write to us about is podcast at politico.eu. That's podcast at politico.eu. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.